Black and brown women are one of the most vulnerable populations during disaster, and they're being disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus as a result of their race, class, and gender that renders them invisible, even in the COVID-19 pandemic narrative. And so my brand, Black Woman, was really born out of what I realized was the invisibility of Black women. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to COVID-19 Heroes. I'm your host, Lorraine Schneider, and today I'm speaking with Felicia Henry. Felicia is a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow at the University of Delaware, where she is currently pursuing a PhD in sociology and criminal justice. We talk about how different minority groups, including black and brown communities, are disproportionately affected by disasters, including COVID. Felicia also tells us about her initiative spearheading the Black Women I Got You Sis Fund, dedicated to supporting black and brown women during the pandemic. In the age of social distancing, there's no better gift than a go gift. What is a go gift? It's a way to give loved ones meaningful, personalized gifts by bringing together friends and family from all over the world. Everyone contributes by writing messages that get added to a personal, private website. One new message gets delivered every day, so the more messages, the longer the gift lasts, and the receiver will always have their own little slice of the internet to look back on. Head to gogift.com slash COVID, that is G-O-G-Y-F-T dot com slash COVID. Gogift, the gift that keeps on giving. Hi, Felicia. Thank you for being on today's show of COVID-19 Heroes. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. You recently launched the Black Women I Got You Says Fund. Tell us a little bit about it. What is it and what led you to create it? So the Black Woman I Got You Sis Fund was created by my brand, Black Woman, as a simple way to support Black and brown women during the COVID-19 pandemic. And Black and brown women are one of the most vulnerable populations during disaster. And they're being disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus as a result of their race, class, and gender that renders them invisible, even in the COVID-19 pandemic narrative. And so my brand, Black Woman, was really born out of what I realized was the invisibility of Black women. Um, I started another organization, Behind the Walls Between the Lines, which is a social justice arts collective, about six years ago. And I didn't really realize the ways that Black women could both be present and invisible at the same time. And so our art showcases featured Black women. They were the poets and the spoken word artists and the musicians and the dancers from various walks of life, but it didn't center us. And so to celebrate our fifth anniversary last year, I decided that I wanted to change that. I wanted to make Black women friends and center. And so we came together and we sung, we danced, we created visual pieces, we played live music, did poetry, and engaged in dialogue that was all about Black womanhood. And so I realized then that it couldn't just be a one-time thing. Uh, I wanted to launch something that would continue to center Black womanhood. And so I envisioned Black women originally to make a statement Um, to say that Black women and other women of color were more than mothers and wives and partners and professionals and sisters and friends. Um, But outside of their many roles, they really were first women and first human beings that really deserved love and attention and honor and respect and simply just being themselves. And so that's really what Black women is all about. Like, I wanted folks to know that they could chase their dreams, but not at the expense of themselves. And I want black and brown women to be able to pursue these things whole. And so that means that we first have to make that personhood visible. So black woman in in its full glory will really be like a brick and mortar space that's dedicated to and for black women and other women of color um, in Brooklyn, New York and support 
women in the pursuit of their dreams through classes, workshops, different events, uh, a space to increase skills and strategies um, through health and wellness, like therapy and counseling, and just really allow women to be free in their identities as Black women and surround them with a network and a tribe. So the Black woman mission is to make Black and Brown women visible and cultivate the reality that they show up every single day. They are visible every single day and they dream the impossible and defy the improbable. What are some of the firsthand stories that you've heard from the people who your fund is is helping out? How have they been impacted by COVID? Yeah, so a lot of the women actually talked about financial issues. So they talked about either losing their employment or experiencing like reduction in hours in their employment. They talked about a lack of childcare, even if they were still employed. So having to either pay for that childcare or staying home because they had to take care of their children. Uh, they talked about food and groceries and rental assistance and you know, purchasing all of these kinds of uh, necessities that they, they that they needed. Um, they also talked about uh, something that is familiar to Black and Brown women, which is taking care of their families, and so taking in parents or siblings or other family members, um, and also this idea around their motherhood and and really needing support in that way. Um, and then one interesting thing is also around uh, their diagnoses. So some of them either themselves or their children had actually been um, diagnosed with COVID and so needing support, material support around, you know, um, taking care of themselves, especially those with underlying health issues. And um, I think one of the ones that stood out to me the most was one um, woman asking for assistance to uh, start therapy because of the impact to her mental health. And so I think that those stories really shaped um, a lot of the experiences that Black and Brown women already have in their day-to-day life that's then exacerbated by the virus and the pandemic that's going on. Social work has come up time and time again on this podcast, which I find really good and and really wonderful because I think it's opening up a lot of people's eyes uh, to this profession. It certainly opened my eyes as I learn more and more about it and, and just how it helps society in so many ways. Does your master's in social work help frame your worldview? Yeah, so a little bit about my journey. So um, I originally went to college to study business, actually, to study entrepreneurship. And I started in the classes and I just was like, I don't think that this is for me. Um, I've already done business in high school. This seems a little bit like less personal than I want. Um, so let me kind of dig into some other classes and just see what's out there. And so then I registered for an introduction to social work class and from the first day, I knew that that was the place that I wanted to be in. I knew that that was a field that I wanted to be in and um, make a difference in. And so social work for me is so important because one, and and you would, you can, you know, agree with this Lorraine, even in your experience as an emergency manager, um, social workers can really be everywhere. Um, they can work in a lot of different kind of subfields, so to speak. Um, they can make a difference by being program managers, program directors, um, they can work in government, they can work in nonprofits, they can work, um, you know, really in in grassroots organizations, like they can really be everywhere. Because really, what they're doing is looking at society and saying, hey, how can we alleviate um, and or challenge and or disrupt some of the systems that affect the people that we work with. And so, 
for me, that was really a call and really fell in line with my values around justice and around pursuing justice for folks that were marginalized and, you know, kind of locked out of opportunities. And so um, social work. So when I went to college, I got the bachelor's degree in social work and I minored in criminal justice and really kind of understanding how those two systems intersected and then chose to continue pursuing my education and getting my master's. Um, But you know, really thinking about the dynamic nature of social work and then thinking about the dynamic nature of individuals, it definitely helps shape my worldview because um, it allows me to really kind of get underneath a lot of the uh, differences that we like to highlight around people and understand that people um, really have the same basic needs, right? We have the basic needs of needing to fulfill, you know, food and and clothing and, and shelter, but then also the basic needs needs of being accepted and loved and valued. And so figuring out ways that folks are experiencing that, even if they might be different in race or ethnicity or gender, um, really making sure that as a social worker and then as a social worker that may not necessarily be working in a capacity as a social worker, because I'm not right at this moment, still taking those social work principles and understanding that dignity and respect and justice and autonomy belongs to every single person and really working hard to make sure that folks can have that and operate in that and move in that. So social work for me has been you know, really, just really important to the way that I pursue my work and also really important to just the way that I see, you know, the world and humanity, knowing that my work is really important to continue to kind of dismantle those systems that don't allow folks to live in their full humanity. You are currently a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow at the University of Delaware, where you're pursuing a PhD in sociology and criminal justice. What is the Bill Anderson Fund and why is it so important to exist? Yeah, great question. So the Bill Anderson Fund was started in honor of William Everett Anderson. So he's affectionately called Bill. And so he was a a Black man, a pioneer in the hazard and disaster mitigation policy field. And his wife, Norma Anderson, would often tell us a story about how um, every time he went to like a different conference or, you know, somewhere to speak, a university, he would literally count on his fingers how many Black or Brown faces were in the room. And Oftentimes, he would either be the only one or him and his wife would be the only two or they would be one of very few Black scholars in the room. And so his personal mission was to really change that, to expand um, a space for Black and Brown scholars to not only show up as students, but also as professionals, like after um, they got their master's degree and their PhDs, to be able to really kind of contribute to the field based on um, their experiences really with the world. And so when he passed away, his wife, Norma Anderson, started the Bill Anderson Fund um, in 2014 to really carry on that legacy and expand the number of historically underrepresented um, professionals in the field of disaster and hazard research and practice. And so the Bill Anderson Fund hosts 
the Bill Anderson Fund um, Fellowship. And so, you know, it's a group of black and brown scholars, both folks who have already gotten their PhD and are currently in their PhD programs. And it's a really important space because one, it allows us to come together and recognize that there are folks in the field that even though the field may not necessarily reflect um, what we're seeing in the room, that we are disaster scholars and we are working to contribute our unique voices and perspectives to the field. Um, and it's also really cool because it allows us to see that the field, the disaster or hazard research field is also not limited to like hurricanes and floods. It's not just limited to things that folks might think of as a quote unquote natural disaster. It allows us to see the intersections of all of the things that could potentially be put under the disaster umbrella. And so, um, you know, the fellowship really allows us to share with one another, allows us to rely on one another, allows us to find space and a safe space with one another, um, share ideas. A lot of the fellows have actually published together or have sat on panels together, have um, gotten grants together. Um, and so even the folks that are already, you know, have gotten their PhDs and are professors, you know, those are the folks that they reach out to and ask for advice and mentorship and all of those things. And I will also say the fellowship pairs us with mentors that are already in the field. And that is so super important as well, because it allows us again, echoing what I've already said, to see that, you know, disaster scholars can be everywhere and really make a, a difference and a contribution. So the Bill Anderson Fund is really, really important. And, you know, I'm hoping to continue to see lots and lots of black and brown scholars be able to benefit from what a really, really great space that it is. That's really, really wonderful, um, especially because being in emergency management, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that not all ethnic groups are affected the same by disasters, no matter the nature of the disaster, whether it's a hurricane, an earthquake, or, or like now COVID-19. Can you speak a little to the um, disparities that exist between different population groups and how they are affected by disasters? I think it's really important. So there's a lot of buzzwords, right? There's like social vulnerability, vulnerable populations that folks may or may not be familiar with. But um, what's really crucial to understand is that when we think about disasters, when we think about hazards, we can't disassociate those things with systems of stratification or, um, you know, systems of oppression and those kinds of things, because they really do make a difference, right? And so when we think about specific vulnerable populations, let's say, you know, Black communities, we recognize that you know, because of their geographical locations, um, you know, because of the dense inner city or because of, you know, maybe in the rural kind of areas or wherever may be the case, they're exposed, their exposure to hazards are increased, right? When we think about some of the underlying health conditions and issues that black and brown populations deal with, we understand that when they're coming to the table and potentially being infected with a virus like COVID-19, um, that's really going to take a toll, right? That's not going to be something that, you know, they can kind of just brush off because they're already dealing with those underlying conditions. When we think about um, the ways that disasters can interplay with, you know, racism, when we think about the way that disasters can play in with sexism, for example, women are a vulnerable population in disasters because, you know, they are already contending with 
the ways that they've been locked out and their access in society. And then when we think about responses and how, you know, communities might be gathering supplies um, and the men might want to kind of take control and say, hey, like, you know, we'll divvy out, we'll make the task, whatever have you, and, and women's voices are not heard. Or when we just think about, you know, folks that are experiencing poverty, when it's, you know, when a disaster happens and then it's time to either rebuild or think about policies within the recovery process, those folks who have already been marginalized, whose voices have not already been represented, you know, historically, um, those are not going to be the voices that are going to be represented during the recovery phase. And so I think it is really important, both as professionals within the disaster field, but also just the lay person to understand that, you know, disasters are not going to come largely, not going to come and change someone's lives so much radically than um, what was happening before, right? It's really just going to exacerbate some of those conditions and some of those ways um, that have already existed. And so when we think about women or we think about, you know, racial or ethnic minorities, when we think about um, gender minorities, folks that are, you know, non-conforming, when we think about uh, folks that are uh, experiencing poverty or folks that are living in inner cities or folks that are, might be in coastal areas, like all of those things take a toll or, or play a role, I should say, in, you know, how they experience disasters. And so we're, when we're thinking about uh, differential experience in disasters or when we're thinking about disproportionate impact in disasters, really what we are talking about is understanding those populations that were already locked out before a disaster and understanding that the disaster itself and then the recovery process is really just going to mirror um, and kind of replay those disproportionate strategies and ways of being. So what did you decide to focus your research on now? Yeah, so I'm actually pretty new to the disaster field, which I think is amazing because it also just shows you that folks from anywhere with any background can really come in and, and, and learn, dive in and be able to make a difference. And so my research right now is really focused on the intersection of disasters and criminal justice. And so thinking about, you know, kind of referring back to the, the question um, that we just talked about. So thinking about certain populations that are going to be more vulnerable in a disaster, uh, populations that are involved in the criminal justice system is one of those. Um, when we think about folks that are involved in the criminal justice system, they often have the same kinds of, you know, social vulnerability as, you know, a larger population. So we're talking about those intersections of race and class and gender and all of those things. But that population has a compounded social vulnerability because of their involvement in the criminal justice system. So when we think about um, folks that are incarcerated, right, they're under the social control of the state. They don't have that freedom and mobility to, to evacuate or move during a disaster, right? They have to follow whatever regulations and protocols have been put in place, if any at all. When we think about populations that are on supervision, which is, you know, um, kind of being supervised by the state, but being in the community. So parole or probation or, you know, electronic monitoring. Um, those folks are also more vulnerable because although they're in the community, they still have, you know, a real huge burden to fulfill a lot of conditions that, um, you know, sometimes really impact one another or, or conflict with one another. They might be, re you know, required to do employment, but at the same time still show up and see their probation officer every week. And so thinking about the impacts of that. So my research is really on that intersection 
And so looking at disasters or looking at the criminal justice system really and saying, you know, what happens in the event of a disaster? Like, how do we support these populations? Are there policies in place for these populations? Um, and who are ma- and who's making them, right? Are we relying on, um, let's say, the Department of Corrections or, you know, the facilities that they're being held in to respond appropriately or are there, you know, larger state emergency management agencies that are looking and saying, hey, we want to explicitly call out, you know, incarcerated individuals or individuals under um, under community supervision and make sure that we're putting things in place for them. So that's really where my research mostly is. And so I'm, you know, currently working on a project around parole supervision and disasters and um, now moving into another project that's specifically looking at COVID-19's impact on incarcerated populations. So looking at New York State specifically and kind of figuring out what facilities have, you know, larger COVID-19 infection rates and just understanding how systems and institutions like corrections are responding to the virus. So that's really where the bulk of my research is. And then I also um, do uh, research kind of more largely on race, ethnicity, communities, and the criminal justice system. As emergency managers, we support all first responder operations, including police operations and civil unrests. A lot of us practitioners are wondering how we can be better allies to the black and brown community. So what are some tips that you would have for us and in how we can achieve that? Yeah, I think the best tips um, for emergency managers and, and practitioners is to really understand the legacies of kind of historical marginalization and oppression for the communities that you work in. I think that what we're seeing across our TV screens now, even thinking about the civil unrest in response to police violence, or even when we're looking at our screens and, and seeing the disproportionate numbers for Black and brown communities from COVID-19, we have to really start linking those things together. So as practitioners, um, instead of, you know, kind of responding to the pandemic, so to speak, or responding a, to a disaster, in a vacuum, right? So kind of just looking at the actual disaster and saying, you know, what do we do now? It's really kind of stepping back, taking it out the vacuum and putting it in the larger context. Like, what are the things that folks are contending with on a daily basis that are going to be exacerbated by this um, disaster or by this pandemic? Or what does the access to resources look like for these communities already? Where do they get their resources? You know, what are the things that they use the most? And so when we're thinking about public transportation or we're thinking about, you know, public health care or we're thinking about public welfare um, assistance, when we're thinking about all of those things, we know that those things are going to be largely disrupted in a disaster. And so for practitioners, really understanding that whatever um, policies or plans to respond, to rebuild, to recover, really should incorporate the larger context of those communities and the larger context of our society on a whole, which sounds like a really big task, um, but can easily be done if if folks are kind of ready to dig in and, and look specifically to those places where they are responding. I think also a tip is, is just really um, centering the voices of those that are the most impacted, those that are directly impacted, those are those who are the most marginalized because those are the folks that live it, right? Those are the folks that are going to be impacted by it. And so they understand 
what their needs are. They understand what resources they they need access to um, after a disaster. They know um, what may and may not work for them because they are the ones with the experience. And so as practitioners, and, and not just practitioners, but I think this is even larger to, you know, scholars, research, researchers, you know, government officials, whomever, it's really like we need to do a more concerted effort and really stand in supporting those who are directly impacted and centering their voices and knowing that, you know, while we have expertise, um, we don't know everything. And there is a, a real gem, a real importance to teaming up and partnering with the community instead of kind of responding on behalf of the community or tossing them to this side. And yeah, and then I guess the last tip would just be be willing, be open. I think that especially in the times that we're in now, you know, a lot of folks are are uncomfortable and, and are experiencing a lot of feelings to what's happening and kind of not necessarily knowing what direction to go in and how to, you know, support um, various folks in various fields that may be various actors of systems, whatever have you. Really what we need is a willingness and an openness to learn and to um, relearn. There might be things that we know already or, or ways that we've subscribed to already that might need to change. And so being willing to change along with it and, and being willing to offer what it is that we already know and have expertise in and then continue to learn. So, yeah, that's those are the tips I would say. Thank you for, for sharing your insights. I think one area that we can really improve upon in emergency management is bridging the gap between practitioners and researchers. And so I just find it really awesome that um, I get to, to speak with you and, uh, and hear about, about the research that you're doing and how it can, it can help further our, our field. Felicia, I'm sure you have many. Um, all of us do. But who would be one of your COVID-19 heroes? I would probably say I'm cheating, but all of the first responders in my family and emergency workers in my family um, or essential workers in my family. Um, so like my aunt, my cousins, my uh, sister-in-law, like those folks, um, I would definitely say that those are my heroes because they are exhausted, um, but they still showed up to work every single day. And not only just showed up to work, but they didn't quit, right? They didn't kind of check out and say, I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm not paying attention, or I'm not going to give it my best. They showed up every single day and still gave their best and, you know, did their work in excellence. So those would be my heroes because I think that the principle or the value there is that even in crazy, crazy times, the gifts that we have or the, the roles that we have or the work that we perform um, is still important. And people are still, you know, people are still relying on us to show up and share um, our knowledge, expertise, our skills. And so um, they're very inspiring to me. And I would say that those are my heroes that, you know, even at the personal cost of themselves, they, they went out and did their thing. So my family, I would say, which is not one person, but my family. Well, Felicia, I can't thank you enough for, for speaking with me. Um, you know, I really think that there's so much that can be done to to link together emergency management practitioners and disaster researchers. So I'm so glad that I, I learned of the Bill Anderson Fund this week and um, I got to meet you and um, that we can keep that conversation going and and really, yeah, make sure that this profession becomes even better as as we link forces. 
Yes, excellent. And I'm and I'm really glad that we're having this conversation and really glad that you reached out and that we're having um, you know, this this kind of sharing of minds because I think that it is really important for practitioners and scholars to listen to each other and get to know um, you know, all of the different sides. Cause I think sometimes researchers and academics can um, not necessarily be aware of what's happening on the ground and practitioners may not necessarily know like, you know, all of the theories behind what we're doing. But um, I think it's excellent when folks come together and share their expertise and work together, because I think that's how real change and, and real work is accomplished. So I'm very happy that you are doing this work, very happy that you reached out. And I really thank you for this platform. Before I let you go, how can listeners support the I Got You Says Fund? Yeah, great question. So you can follow us on Instagram. The Instagram tag is B-L-K-W-M-N dot B-K. So again, that's B-L-K-W-M-N dot B-K on Instagram. And if you need uh, more information or you're not necessarily a social media user, you can check out my website, FeliciaHenry.com, F-E-L-I-C-I-A-H-E-N-R-Y.com. And there will be a link to the Black Woman page where you'll see the fund and a little bit more information about us. I'd like to close off this episode by thanking Felicia for her leadership directly supporting Black and Brown women during the pandemic and for her research devoted to bridging criminal justice and disaster management. I hope you'll check out the I Got You Sis Fund. I have included the links in the episode description. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to leave a reading or review in your app. I hope you stay well and healthy. Until next time, I'm your host, Lorraine Schneider.